From Quoted Studios and executive producer David Gerlach, this is Blank on Blank, distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Amy Drozdowska. The incomprehensible vastness of the universe, the wonder of our own place in it all. Carl Sagan was able to explain the science of space in a way everyone could understand. Among his long list of roles and accomplishments, the Cornell professor and NASA advisor is possibly best known for the 13-part television series, which reached millions of people worldwide and sealed his place as celebrity scientist, Cosmos. Maybe he was teased a bit for his tendency to say this word a lot. Billions. But Carl Sagan had this amazing talent for explaining the scientific wonders of the universe without losing the wonder. When he spoke about the science of space, he captured imaginations and held people in thrall. As part of our special series, The Experimenters, uncovering interviews with the icons of science, technology, and innovation, we found this conversation between Studs Terkel and Carl Sagan. They spoke about Contact, the book Sagan wrote with his wife Androyan, and the major motion picture that followed it. They talked all about our continuing search for intelligent life out there, including how, for a long time, Hollywood just got it wrong. Here's the tape. That's inevitable that humans would uh, project their hopes and fears upon the cosmos. The standard Hollywood attempts are to portray the extraterrestrials as uh, red of claw and fang, pointed heads and nasty dispositions. Spielberg has made an important step forward, E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, to show the possibility of benign extraterrestrials. But even there, the, the extraterrestrials are only slight variants on human beings when the evolutionary record is clear that extraterrestrials would be very different from us. And also, they're not awfully smart, his extraterrestrials. Sweet, but not smart. Sweet, but not smart. Yeah. Sort of Pillsbury doughboys in uh, Close Encounters. If you look at timescales, you realize that our civilization is the most backward civilization in the galaxy that could communicate at all because we've just invented radio telescopes just a few decades ago. We had not the ghost of a chance of communicating with anybody else. So if we receive a message, it can't be from anybody less capable than we because anybody less capable can't communicate at all. So it has to be somebody much in advance of us and maybe as much in advance of us as we are in advance of the ants, say, or the worms. You, Carl Sagan, scientist, astronomer, enlightened man, you think that indeed there may be some sort of intelligence out there? May, surely, surely may, but uh, we don't yet know, and, and you know, it's important not to decide before the evidence is in. But there certainly is a kind of plausibility argument for extraterrestrial life, and it goes something like this. There's, uh, we now realize, an enormous number of planets, a range of planetary systems around the nearby stars, some in the process of formation, as the solar system was four billion years ago or so, others apparently fully formed. So there's a lot of potential abodes for life, that's one thing. Then there's the question of organic matter. 
the carbon-rich complex molecules that are essential for the kind of life we know about are fantastically abundant. They litter the universe. We see them in asteroids and comets and the moons in the outer solar system and even in the cold, dark spaces between the stars. So the stuff of life is everywhere. And then there's time. There are billions of years for biological evolution in all those worlds. There are many worlds that are much older than ours. So you put those together, lots of places, lots of organic matter, lots of time, and it seems very hard to believe that uh, our paltry little planet is the only one that's inhabited. It's an ancient human theme. You can find it in virtually every culture, in uh, religion, folklore, superstition, and now in science. This question through the ages is that, is there what some intelligence out there? And it touches to the deepest of human concerns. Uh, are we alone? How common is this thing called life this thing called intelligence. Where did we come from? What are the possible fates of intelligent beings? Need we necessarily destroy ourselves? Might there be a bright and very long future for the human species? The search for life elsewhere is remarkable in our age because this is the first time that we can actually do something besides speculation. We, we tend to have such a narrow view of our place in space and in time and the, uh, the prospect of, of making contact with extraterrestrial intelligence uh, works to deprovincialize our worldview. And I think uh, for that reason, the search itself, even without a success, has uh, great merit. You know, the phrase we use about Earth people, us, we, are so benighted. The Earth is the ghetto of the universe. <laughs> We're the ghetto of the universe. Well, in, in an extremely backward and obscure part of uh, the Milky Way galaxy, we're 30,000 light years from the center of the galaxy. We're in the now, galactic boondocks. Uh, we'd explain that again. 30,000 light years. A light, light year, year is how far, it's a distance, how far light travels in a year. Light travels 186,000 miles in a second. So in a year... It travels something like a uh, little less than six trillion miles. That's one light year. Six trillion miles, one light year, doesn't even get you out of the solar system. That's, uh, that's still at the uh, outer edge, probably, of the belt of comets that surrounds the sun. So multiply that by 30,000. Multiply that by 30,000, and that's the distance from here to the center of our galaxy, which is composed of four hundred billion suns, more or less like our own. And this whole galaxy is only one of probably hundreds of billions of other galaxies, a useful calibration of our place in the universe. There's also religion and science. There is a tendency in, uh, in both schools of thought to think that they have a corner in the truth. I mean, a way to look at it is the following. Science and religion on some level are after the same thing. Take uh, the question of our origins. Both science and religion attempt to approach this question. But the religions all contradict each other, so they can't all be right. The Judeo-Christian Islamic religion holds that uh, the world is about 6,000 years old. You just count up the baguettes in the Old Testament. It's very clear, 6,000 years old. The Hindus uh, have an infinitely old universe with an infinite number of creations and destructions of the whole universe. Now, those two major religions can't both be right. Uh, 
How do you tell which is right and which is wrong? Well, the only way is to appeal to the natural world around us. And the natural world around us shows that the Earth, for example, is about 4.6 billion years old, nothing like 6,000 years old. So a literal reading of the Bible simply is mistaken. I mean, it's just wrong. It's just wrong. That doesn't mean that the Bible can't be a source of inspiration, that it isn't a great uh, literary work, that it doesn't uh, give valid uh, moral and ethical prescriptions, but uh, as a work of science, it is flawed. It's the science of the Babylonians in the 6th century BC, and we've learned something since then. Sagan talking with Studs Terkel in 1985. Special thanks to the Studs Terkel Radio Archive, housing over four decades of interviews by the legendary Studs for his WFMT Chicago radio show. To hear more, visit studsterkel.org. This episode is part of our science and innovation series, The Experimenters. Thanks to Squarespace for their support. Support for the series also comes from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information on Sloan at sloan.org. You can watch the animated version of this episode on our website, blankonblank.org. David Gerlach is the executive producer of Blank on Blank. This episode was produced by me, Amy Drozdowska, along with David, and with help from Jesse Wright Mendoza. Before we go, a little more about science and religion, according to Carl Sagan, and also Albert Einstein. Well, you quote Einstein, the cosmic religious feeling, he is religious in that sense, is the strongest, noblest motive for scientific research. So there's a religion of sorts that Einstein Right, but it's it's very different from uh, most people's uh, view of religion. Einstein talked about God, but for Einstein, God was little more than the sum total of the laws of the universe. And there was no hint of intervention in daily life, of the efficacy of prayer, of life after death, or any of those accoutrements of the Judeo-Christian Islamic religion.